Welcome to Grab the Gavel, a podcast from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. The conversations presented aim to show students the human side of judges, their diversity, backgrounds, and common struggles. We hope these insights might inspire students to consider legal careers or even grab the gavel themselves one day as a judge. Now, here's your moderator, Judge Zia Faruqi. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Grab the Gavel. Uh, we're here today with uh, a mentor and friend uh, of mine, uh, Judge McKee. Uh, I'm Judge Faruqi. I'm a magistrate judge down in the D.C. District Court. Uh, and Judge McKee was kind enough. Uh, he's not only a circuit court judge and an icon in the judiciary, he's also um, volunteered his time to better the civic engagement uh, throughout the country, uh, speaking at many panels, but as well with the Rendell Center. And so uh, Judge McKee, so excited for the opportunity to talk to you today about what it takes for somebody who's thinking about, you know, becoming a lawyer, becoming a judge, what does it take to grab the gavel? So uh, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thanks for asking me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you so much, me too. So just to start with, uh, tell me a little bit about your background. Where, where are you from and uh, what was growing up in, in that neighborhood community like? Well, I'm from a small town in upstate New York. Um, growing up was really, it was almost like the old Ozzie and Harriet uh, TV shows, which members of your audience may have no idea <laughs> what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> but it was idyllic. It was a small town of about 3,000, 4,000 people. Uh, my dad was a waiter on the railroads. He was not home very often. He'd be away on a run, as we called it, for four or five days and home for three or four days. My mom um, worked in the kitchen at the school for most years and also did um, domestic work. My, we actually lived with my grandmother, who was a living domestic for many, many years, um, toward the end of her life, actually. Um, it was a predominantly white time when it went down. I hesitate to say all white, but it was damn near all white. <laughs> okay. I think there were four or five black families in the town, counting our, um, ourselves. Um, of my high school graduating class, there were two black kids, of which I was one. And I think of the four classes in the high school, the high school combined uh, wasn't just high school, um, but I don't think there were too many other black kids in the school. There was one... Wow. Um, a young girl in the eighth grade, uh, and the, the fact I'm having so much trouble remembering suggests to <laughs> how few black folks we, we had in the town. But you know, I say it was idyllic because I was the president of the student body. Um, my senior year before that, my brother, who was four years older than me, was the president of the student body his senior year. Um, the, 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 the glitch came in the fall when we got migrant workers who came to town to work some of the farm fields that were in the area. And the reception that they got was very, very different from the reception that I was used to having grown up in the town. And at the time, I didn't know if that was because they were, quote, outsiders, because it was a very provincial town, uh, or because they were black. And I think it was, in retrospect, probably both, primarily because they were black, and I think they were looked down upon. To show you what I mean about how provincial, my grandmother had lived in that town for maybe 50 years, 60 years. And there was, some, there was a newer development and toward the uh, outside of the town, on the edge of it. And uh, whenever I referred to any of the kids who lived in that, uh, in that little cul-de-sac, she referred to them as one of the newcomers. Even though they may have been there 25 years, <laughs> she referred to them as, oh, yeah, she, she lives up there where the newcomers are. She's one of the newcomers. <laughs> My grandma, she'd been here for a while. But okay. you know, it was fine. Uh, high school athletics was not great. Um, we once referred, referred 
to in the Rochester newspaper as the doormat of the league, which oh, no. we were, which we were. What position did you play? Well, in basketball, I played center and forward. In soccer, right. I played fullback. We didn't have a football team, much to my chagrin. Okay. I did play football in college, and I wanted to play football as I was growing up. Uh, we had a, we played sandlot football pretty much every weekend. A group of us got together and played tackle football um, in a sandlot, a vacant lot. And usually on Monday, somebody would come in with their ominous sling or a crutch because we didn't have any equipment. And there were, there were empty beer cans around, there were broken glass, and we were playing football, tackle All football. Right. Tell me about, you know, any challenges you had growing up black in the community? You told us, uh, and I think it's, it's great to hear that, you know, there was pretty uh, harmonious uh, community. Um, but I think for a lot of our listeners, you know, you know, today still people feel like there are challenges. Um, well, there are challenges. I know you, yeah. Yeah, th- I was very much accepted because I was so familiar to everybody. My family is so familiar to everybody because my grandmother, as I said, had been there for so many years. I do remember when I went to college, I wrote a couple of letters back to the town newspaper and that created a very abrupt change. I did, um, and I can't remember, one of the topics I think was after, I think it was Meg Rivers was assassinated. Um, And I just wrote a letter expressing my feeling about the complacency of a place like Scottsville and that did not win me any any friends. You know, the friends I grew up with, for the most part, uh, I still got along with, well, I'm, I'm still in touch with some of them, but there was some hostility there. There's one guy, I remember, he came up. Uh, I was talking to a buddy of mine. I was home from college. He was home from college. Another guy that I had played soccer and basketball with stopped by, and he was talking to this other guy. He never acknowledged my presence, not once. Didn't say hello, didn't say shit. Wow. Uh, used the language. Um, we talked for about, he was out there for about 45 minutes, never even acknowledged that I was there. So there was that kind of reception when I, came out of the comfort, not my own comfort zone uh, even, but the comfort zone that I well, was raised in uh, in the town. Yeah, you told me uh, previously I was really interesting, you know, and so maybe it was more of a, an individual based uh, sort of events, but um, I think our audience would really benefit from hearing. Tell me about what happened with your you know, father when you when you had to get a haircut before a basketball game once. Yeah, there, there were two instances actually with my dad. One was my guidance counselor and one was uh, uh, the barber. Um, I would do a barber shop right across the street from us that I would usually go to, and uh, and I was you know I found with him and there was a rumor in town amongst the black folks, a few of us, that there was this other guy who lived whose barber shop was kind of at the end of the little main street that we had, who did not cut uh, black folks' hair, um, and I mentioned to my dad because we would always go to Buffalo to get my hair cut and the Buffalo from it means you had to go into Rochester. Uh, which we have to take a bus in because we didn't have a car then, and then take a train to Buffalo, which didn't cost anything because we had to pass to ride the train. And um, we, that's how, growing up as a very young kid, I always go to Buffalo to get my hair cut. There came a time when uh, we stopped doing that, and I think it was uh, my dad suggested, or maybe it was actually the barber that I had been going to, that this other barber did not cut the hair of black folks. And... Um, I think it was Dad who said, you know, um, he will cut your hair. You go up there and, and you're going to get a haircut. So I, I rode my bicycle up there. I may have walked over the bicycle. I think I rode my bike. And this was on a Friday, late afternoon after school. And there was a basketball game that night. And um, I said, well, Dad, if I go up there, I might I might be late for the basketball game. And Dad said, the hell with the basketball game. You go up there and get the haircut. That shocked me because Dad was a tremendously, uh, he was a tremendous athlete. He was uh, very, very 
enthused about basketball. He was the first black person to play high school basketball in the state of Indiana as a kid. He got run out by the Klan uh, and wow. to actually go to Buffalo. That's and amazing. Didn't finish in Bloomington because of his mom's concerns about his safety. So for dad to say the hell with the basketball game, whoa, that that kind of that, that was out of the ordinary. So I went up there and I walked in, and the barber first his first he looked at me. He said, uh, "Do you have an appointment?" I said, "No, I don't have an appointment." And he said, well, you have to have an appointment. And there are about four or five people in there. And again, a small town. I knew everybody. So I referred to them by name. And I said, do you have an appointment? They all said, no, no, we don't have an appointment. And so then I looked back at the barber. And he goes, okay, sit down. Wait your turn. So I sat there. I waited. Fortunately, nobody came in after me because I'm convinced had they come in after me, he would have taken them ahead of me. He cut my hair. Um, asked me, let me back up a second. I, I'm getting ahead of myself. I first went to the barber shop. And the, the barber told me he he would not cut my hair. I then went home and told my dad that. That's when dad said, you go up there. Um, he got on his bicycle for us, went up to see um, the barber, came back after having a talk with the barber. And then he said, you, you go up there, he'll cut your hair. And then I said, well, dad, um, I'm going to be late for the ball game. And, and dad said, the hell with the ball game, you go get your hair cut. And when I went in there, and I already mentioned what happened, I cut my hair and I, and I came back home. There's one other incident with my high school guidance counselor, and this is very, very typical, even today, of um, black folks who are not, not only not encouraged, but discouraged from uh, trying to reach the full potential. Um, I went in to see the guidance counselor, and she basically discouraged me from trying to apply to a four-year school. She tried to um, can best be applied to a two-year school in a program of ornamental ornamental horticulture. I didn't even know what the, or how ornamental horticulture was. I lived in that was flower-ranging. But I was very handy with my hands, and I twirled leather as a hobby of mine. And I had wow. made my own briefcase and my belts and my bell folds. And all the teachers in school had seen my artwork. Uh, and so that's why she thought, I guess, that I'd be uh, okay in ornamental horticulture, although that has nothing to do with my leather tooling. I went home and I mentioned to dad that uh, my guidance counselor had suggested that I consider a two-year school, not a four-year school. <laughs> Dave, again, he got, he got I, got, I can school. guess. Yeah. <laughs> now, this was February. This is February in upstate New York, outside of Rochester. I don't remember what it was like up there, but it is never warm yes. up there in yes. February. It's just not warm. The only issue is how many feet of snow will be on the ground, how many degrees above zero it will be, and, and often that's a single digit. Anyhow, Dad, Dad rode his bicycle up. Um, he came back to the school this time. He came back and he said, Mrs. Putnam will see you first thing in the morning. <laughs> so I walked into her office. She had all this stuff. Oh, Teddy, I'm so glad you came in because I school. Let me tell you, I have some materials for you. And she had for Princeton and Yale and Harvard and Cornell, schools I couldn't have afforded, you know. Uh, probably couldn't have gotten into most of them. I was a good, solid student. Was not an A student. My SATs were certainly respectable. Ironically, after that, um, I worked as an admissions counselor for a branch of the State University for three years, um, one of the university centers for the State University of New York. So I, in retrospect, I knew what it would take to get into a branch of the State University. And that's where I wanted to go because I wanted to play football. And the only schools we could afford were uh, state schools, and there are only two schools at the time that have football. That's why I made my decisions to where I was going to go. Um, and you know, being present with the student body, being a varsity athlete, uh, having solid grades, and I would have had off the chart recommendations. 
I was very, very packageable in terms of putting together a good, solid application for college. Right. And the more I thought about that as I got older, particularly given my experience as an admissions counselor, the more I realized just how off the mark um, her achievement of, of me was. And But for a dad, I don't think I would have settled for a two-year school. I would still have wanted to go to a four-year school and play football, although there were two-year schools that you could go and play football. Uh, but not with the state university. So I probably would have ended up where I went anyhow because of the financial consideration and wanting to play football in college. It's, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I, I, I can tell you firsthand, I had an experience, you know, as a, when I was a uh, law student where I had a setback in my legal career and someone invited me to come talk to him, suggested maybe this isn't the path for you. And I was just like, yeah. well, the ship has kind of sailed on this one. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now. Yeah, but it's, I'm going to yeah. let it go and sink to the bottom like yeah, the Titanic, yeah, but I'm not jumping off yeah, yet. Yeah, and, you know, I'm so glad. Um, yeah. More importantly, I'm going to tell my mom, who has always thought I could get better grades, that Judge McKee, a Third Circuit uh, Court judge, didn't have top of the class straight A's, and I no, didn't no, I did either. Not. So that yeah, just goes right. to show you, you don't need not to be number one student. student. You do not. No, I was not a straight A student. A good student. Right. very solid student. Solid yeah. B student. But not a, um, there you go. Thank you. Look, you're the, you're the role model I needed that oh, I didn't no. have in high school. <laughs> I actually didn't start. I got one A in college. I really didn't start cranking out A's on a regular basis until I got to law school and I had matured and I, I was able to commit to my studies and really focus. Um, and I was much more mature, not of thought so much, but of rigor. I was a very yeah. rigorous studier when I got to law school. Well, and um, yeah, I, I did my first I, semester in law school. I got more ease than I ever gotten <laughs> in still, four years. Still, high I'm still waiting to hit my stride for my maturity, <laughs> but it's good to know to get there. So that's a perfect uh, segue. Tell me about how did you, you know, you didn't have anyone in your family that was a lawyer. No. Um, how did you decide that you were going to go to law school and become a lawyer? Really, process of elimination. You know, growing up, I wasn't sure what else I, I wanted to be. I, I thought about an attorney. I really didn't know any lawyers. My town had two lawyers in it. One was the town drunk, and he was also the mayor. So, <laughs> and the other one was a, a pretty wealthy family, large family in town. Uh, and the dad was a lawyer, and the, his father was a lawyer. And um, they lived in a really nice house. And and the son there was a really good friend of mine. There were about four or five sons. <clears throat> One of them was in my class, and we became really good friends. And they had a barn uh, in the back of the house. And oftentimes during the winter, we'd go up there, and there was a hoop in there. Uh, and we'd go in up there, and we'd play basketball inside in the in the barn. It was big enough so that one of the areas in there you could you could play basketball. It's cold as hell, but but we <laughs> we played ball in there anyhow. And I, uh, you know, in retrospect, it may be seeing. The lifestyle that he had, um, which was really nice, the nicest house I had ever been in, um, and his dad, the grandfather of my my, my high school buddy, uh, had a very very nice house. That may have had something to do with it, but I think primarily it was just watching TV shows. Was the age of Perry Mason, The Defenders, and I wasn't really sure what else I could I would want to do. I didn't see myself as going into medicine, despite Ben Casey, which was also very popular, and Doctor Kildare. Uh, and so I think I just kind of gravitated. I grew up with the thought that that's what I was going to do. There came a point in time when I when I was dissuaded from that, where I became very uh, skeptical about the ability of the law to guarantee uh, basic fundamental freedoms. And that was during the period of uh, the assassination of President Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and seeing people having their homes bombed for wanting to vote. Um, fire hoses turned on them for wanting to register to vote the Freedom Riders and the 
the videos of what happened to them. And I was I didn't see the law really protecting them. And I really then began to rethink whether or not the law was the right place for me to go. And was this at this time where you were you already at you became a prosecutor after you um, graduated mm -hmm. from law school. So yeah, those thoughts occurred to me really when I was in college and high school. Mm. Uh, I, I turned away from that idea of going into law. When I was working for the three years I worked between um, college and, and uh, law school, I began to focus a little bit more on going to law school again because I did not know what else to do. I did not want to be a career uh, admissions counselor, although it was a wonderful job. And yeah. I could really have a very positive impact on people's lives. And some of the people I admitted at college, in fact, I'm still in touch with. There was a program where I had sole admission authority um, for folks. And uh, and it was and I was encouraged to go out and, divert and recruit a diverse group of applicants. I was really in charge of minority recruitment for the university. And that was my job. Uh, it, was, it was a wonderful job. Um, I met my wife there, actually. Okay. Um, what, almost 50, 50 years. Um, Congratulations! But I, <laughs> thanks, but I did not. I knew I did not want to spend my my professional career as an admissions counselor, and that's when I began thinking again about going to uh, to law school. Okay, and so tell me about how did you come to after you graduated law school? How did you become? What what led you to becoming a prosecutor? Trial experience. I was a big firm, and I knew if uh, I was in the litigation department, I thought seriously about doing real estate work because I loved real estate primarily because of one. A professor I had in law school who was fascinating, uh, and he taught several real estate courses. Um, I took it because he taught, even though he was an incredibly difficult marker. Uh, I really respected him, and I began thinking about real estate, and he made it interesting. But when I went to the firm, uh, I, I had in the back of my mind litigation because I wanted to do law, use law as an instrument of change. And I, in real estate, uh, I won't say you cannot do that because I had a couple of uh, cases there or, or um, assignments there where I really think you can use real estate law to have a very positive impact on society. Um, but I, I thought that litigation was probably what I wanted to do, but I knew if I stayed at the firm long enough to get my own trials, it would be too late to change my mind. And so I began thinking of where I could get litigation, and it was between the DA's office and the U.S. Attorney's office. And just there was something about the U.S. Attorney's office being an assistant U.S. Assistant US attorney that really um, appealed to me, and um, and I was fortunate enough to um, be hired there without any trial experience, which now I don't think that would happen. Back then, the person who was U.S. attorney had the position that he did not want people with a lot of trial experience because he wanted to uh, teach people from the beginning and, and kind of write on a blank slate and not have to unlearn bad habits. And so uh, it worked out really well for me. Okay. And then while you were there, you took some time to focus on prosecuting police brutality cases. How did you get involved in that? Yeah, there was a time um, during which um, it was very turbulent in Philadelphia. Uh, the Philadelphia Police Department at the time was headed by the later, subsequently became Mayor Frank Rizzo. And there were all kinds of tensions between the black community and the white community. There were problems with allegations of uh, excessive force. So much so that the Civil Rights Commission came to Philadelphia to investigate the conduct of the Philadelphia Police Department as a part of that momentum, a grand jury was impaneled to, uh, by, by the then U.S. attorney to investigate allegations of excessive force because there were a lot of them coming out of the black community. And that just fascinated me because one of the reasons I went to law school was to use the law to uh, effectuate change and try to 
um, be part of the solution and not the social problem. So I went to the U.S. attorney and I said, geez, I'd love to get interested. And I'm very interested in this. I'd love to get involved in some of these cases. And he said, fine, uh, go with it. And so I did. Uh, shortly after that, I was reading an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer, on a Sunday Inquirer, the full front page, about a young boy, I think it was 16 or 17, I still remember his name, actually, who was uh, literally assaulted by a police dog. He was with some friends sitting out in the middle of the day, um, and they were just sitting around, and depending, according to the boy's story, um, the police officer ordered them to disperse, and the, the, uh, the kid admitted lipping off to the cop and basically saying, you know, we're, we're just minding our own business. And the cop got upset and sicked his dog on the boy, had 104 stitches on his face. Uh, it was an ugly, ugly case. Yeah. And uh, I read the article in the Sunday Inquirer, as I said, I went into the guy who was U.S. attorney the next day and I said, you know, we, we have got to investigate this case. He said, yeah, I read it too. I agree with you. We've got to, we've got to investigate that. Uh, he said, I'm not sure we can get a conviction, but we've got to investigate it. And I left the office thinking to myself, how can we not get a conviction? And as things developed, we couldn't even get an indictment. It's, it's very, very difficult. Uh, and, and that didn't involve race. That was a, a white kid in the middle of the day, no prior record, no beer was involved, uh, no allegation that he had a weapon. Just the police officer figured he was going to, I guess, tune this kid up by using his dog. And I couldn't get uh, an indictment by the grand jury. They they said they were trying to tie the police officer's hands, and you can't do that. You've got to let the police officers do their job. And I had a conversation with the foreman of the grand jury afterward, and, and that's what he told me as to why they did not indict. Incredible. Uh, so eventually, you know, you went through a couple other jobs uh, after that, but ultimately decided to become a judge, which is, you know, what, what we're really here to talk about. And um, I think what's important people understand is that state court judges uh, frequently uh, have to run for office, whereas yeah. federal judges are appointed. So you, you've had experience with both. Tell us, what was it like to run for office to become a judge? <laughs> horrible. <laughs> In a word, it was horrible. Um, I don't suggest that anyone set up a theme to select judges that uh, involves popular elections. It's a terrible way to select judges. I've been going to ward meetings every night for about a, about a year. I've been to ward meetings, committee meetings. <clears throat> um, uh, the thing that strikes me the most, I remember the second meeting I went to was a um, fundraiser for um, I think one of the city council candidates. And it was at one of the local watering holes in town. There were, there's one in the Northeast, which was pretty much an all-white area, one in South Philly, which was more of a mixed area, but largely Italian. This one was at the watering hole in South Philly. And I remember when I went in there, um, the person who came over to me, whom I knew, who then held a very high and respectable position in the city, said, you know, Ted, I know you're running. I want you to, uh, to introduce you to somebody who can help you candidacy. He introduces me to someone who is a very powerful uh, politician in Pennsylvania, well, this is somebody that I had a wiretap on for about, for about a year and a half and Washington designed the wow. prosecution. So wow. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, am I going to come out of this okay? <laughs> 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 but, you know, it's uh, the, the, the electorate does not know who they're voting for. And that Philadelphia is not unique here. It's a ward leader election. And you get elected for the most part, not totally, but for the most part, by getting your name on as many sample ballots on as possible. That means getting support of ward leaders. <clears throat> that involves what we call street money here in Philadelphia. 
in other areas that may call it a bribe, but we call it street money. And some of it is legit because the board leaders and committee people need to defray the cost of their election day operation. That they print out sample ballots with a name on it. That, that's the cost there. Many of them pay the committee people to hand out uh, their sample ballots on election day. Some of them provide refreshments uh, for the people working election day. And so that that's a legitimate expense. But some of the fees that were asked uh, were so exorbitant that you knew that was not a legitimate election day expense. And that, that from what I tell, that's, can tell that practice politics. is still going on. Still going All right. On. Yeah. So you won your election. You became a state court judge. Tell us what is that? How did you, um, you know, becoming a circuit judge first, maybe you could just give us a real quick kind of understanding, you know, what is a circuit judge? And then uh, we'll talk about how you got that and get the phone call. Okay. Well, the federal system, as some of your listeners probably know, is divided basically it's a little more involved with this because of specialized courts like the federal court and the the uh, bankruptcy court and the um one or two other courts but basically it's the district courts which are trial courts the intermediate appellate court why i'm these are circuit courts and the circuit courts uh have as they're part of their jurisdiction appeals from decisions in uh from the district courts in their jurisdiction the third circuit involves appeals from the district courts in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, and the Virgin Islands. And how we have the jurisdiction with the Virgin Islands is a very, very long story. <laughs> There's a case that lays it out, but but it's a long story. Um, appeals from our court, the circuit court, go directly to the Supreme Court. So we're the court right below the U.S. Supreme Court and right above the uh, the various district courts in the country. It's big time. That's big time. And so tell me, uh, how did you find out that you got nominated to become or that you were going to be drafted to become a circuit court judge and then go through the process of the Senate confirmation? Yeah, well, I've been pursuing a district court judge for a long time because I was that's the trial court. And I was thinking that's the court that I really should aspire towards. And I was had a lunch with a, a now colleague of mine, uh, and he suggested that because of the politics of getting on the district court, it's really the pick of the United States Senator. Um, and it's not, although the Constitution says Article 3 judges are nominated and selected by the president, uh, a, a very, very wise person who at the time was sure of the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, who's now in a very, very high position in the land, <laughs> whose name I won't mention, told me that um, it's really the senators who pick the district court judges, uh, that the president can stop somebody he doesn't want to go with, she doesn't want to go to it with, but it's got to be the approval of the senator. The circuit judges are not really controlled by the senator. That comes out of the White House. And so it was suggested to me by uh, my friend and now colleague, rather than focusing on the district court, um, I didn't know anyone involved at, at that level. I did not know uh, either of the U.S. senators who were then Senator Specter and Senator Wofford, but I did know someone who knew Senator Wofford very, very well. And I, I just called him and I called a few other folks and asked if there's anything they could do to help out. And they arranged for me to have a meeting with Senator Wofford. It was supposed to be a 30 minute meeting. We talked for three and a half hours. I just fell in love with the man. Wow. <laughs> I read his book the weekend before the, the Monday meeting. And, you can do your homework. Oh yeah. But I left the meeting thinking to myself, you know, that three and a half hours, even if this goes nowhere, I am so much better off in my, I'm such, I've had such a rich experience this is okay that I can deal with that because it's all been worth it because I got a chance to spend three and a half hours with that man. And I so respected him and his, his commitment to public service was, was legendary and exemplary. It worked. I later found out kind of both ways. Senator Wofford really took an interest in my candidacy. And even though senators historically had not involved themselves directly 
in uh, appointments to the circuit courts. He had a special relationship with President Clinton. He took it upon himself to kind of be my uh, ambassador to President Clinton and and bring me to President Clinton's attention, and and then things kind of clicked from there. Okay, you know, you, you, let's you go through the Senate confirmation process. You start in this job. Uh, one of the things I always think about, and I, you know, I've had friends talk about, is when you don't have a lot of colleagues that might uh, look like you or talk like you or where you're from. You, 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 it's hard to fit in right? and you feel like maybe, am I really up to this? And you know, it's a circuit judge, you're, you're one underneath the Supreme Court. So do you ever have any struggles or feelings like that? You know, I did at the beginning, but I kept thinking, and to this day, I remember something that Senator Wofford told me, and I won't, he told it to me as part of a story. But the end result was that the trick is going from, and this wasn't only about being on the court, this applies to law school, law firms, any competitive situation. He said, you know, the trick of succeeding is going from what in the hell am I doing here to what in the hell are they doing here and looking at it in terms of not how did I get here, but how did they get here? Uh, and I've had a couple of, of, of those kinds of epiphanies. Um, and fortunately, relatively early on in my time in the court, not to cast any aspersions on my colleagues, I have such tremendous respect for them, but I was able to view the dynamics in a way that made me understand, even as early as back in my law firm, that even though the folks I was dealing with and my peers were very, very talented and, and did good work, I could do that too. And that that got me over the hump. I share that story many times with my law clerks who will be struggling about, can they do the work and um, that kind of thing, do they fit in? And I also had the benefit of one of my colleagues at the time who was uh, a black judge, <clears throat> he's since retired and we're still really good friends and we stay in touch. And I would call him up at times and say, you know, what's going on, we just chat. If I had any concerns about anything, I would, I would share that with him, <clears throat> excuse me, share them with him. And I also had the privilege of being on a very collegial court, um, especially back then, it's, it's still this way, but it's, it was especially so back then, that the, the judges on my court are very respectful of one another, very patient with one another, and, and lend one another a helping hand. My very first dissent that I wrote, um, I was really... Um, um, reluctant to send it out to the panel to, to circulate it to them it was published opinion, would be a published opinion, went to the entire court. And one of the judges on the panel, whose decision I had dissented from, called me and he said, you know, Ted, that was a fine dissent. That was that dissent is in the best um, um, history of our court. Uh, and, and you should be very proud of it. And it was a, you know, a case about um, under a, a relatively obscure act and applies only to railroad workers and when a railroad worker is injured on in, in the course of employment and bringing a lawsuit. And that meant so much to me. Um, and I had a couple other little things like that where some of my colleagues sure. would come by. I had an opportunity to write non-bank opinion, which is an opinion for the entire court, not just the panel of three judges. And uh, I received such positive feedback from that. Uh, and it's nice that, to get kudos when you can oh get yeah, them, right? really, yeah, really yeah. Is, yeah, it really yeah. is, yeah. Well, let me ask you this. So um, as we're winding down with just uh, one final question and then our lightning round, uh, you know, the central theme behind our podcast is just uh, we want people to know at the Rendell Center, I think, and the judiciary, the same is that um, anyone can be a judge. We come from different walks of life. But who do you think, um, what, what do you think judges need to have any qualities and who can be a judge? Can anyone be a judge? Well, it's hard for me. In theory, in the way you're asking the question, yes. Um, practically speaking, no, because there's so few of us out there. There's 180 circuit judges in the country. 
there are more district court judges. I'm not sure what the number is, but there, there are substantially more. So that makes it hard for anyone who wants to become a judge to be a judge. Um, I would I would encourage anyone, and this I really do mean, anyone who is interested in pursuing the bench should definitely pursue it. Don't let someone else, don't be like my guidance counselor, don't take yourself out of the game and tell yourself you can't do it. Um, you really need to do uh, all you can to get there. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen, but you'll have given it your, your best shot. In terms of qualities, years ago when, President Biden, uh, President Biden, I'm sorry, President Obama was president. He was asked about who, what he would be looking for in a Supreme Court nominee, and he said empathy. And he, of course, he was criticized for that because he was told, you know, judges just interpret the law when not supposed to have both supposed to have empathy. But I so respected him for saying that. I respected him anyhow. But that's exactly right. Judges really need to have empathy. You know, we do apply the law, we interpret the law, we don't make the law. Um, we have to kind of go with the law that we're given, the statute of the president. But beyond that, you've got to have empathy and realize that your decisions affect people. Um, the criminal law and the trial judge probably is the best example of that. You have such an opportunity to impact every day the lives of people. Uh, I saw one as a prosecutor. I had the opportunity to impact the lives of people, and I tried to do it in a positive way uh, with the people that I was prosecuting even. Uh, not just with the victims of their crimes. So I would say empathy, and I would encourage anybody who wants to do it to work hard. Grades really do matter at various stages in life, and they will certainly help get people into a position where they maximize the chances of lightning striking and them getting on the bench. So I would really uh, encourage people to study hard, particularly writing and read as much as you can. Read everything you can get your hands on that you're interested in. Just reading. Uh, and broadening your experiences and, and your perspective that way is a tremendous yeah, benefit. There's there's the guidance counselor and I can hear it in you. You know, <laughs> work hard and study. So lightning round. I got this. I got this from my one of my mentors and friends, a former magistrate judge, uh, Paul Grewal, taught me this trick. And so um, uh, I'm going to go with a lightning round. Okay. Uh, quick questions. One favorite Philly sports team. I really don't have a favorite Philly. Oh, sport. You know, I'm not the a Philly, Philly fans fan. are all turned tuning out. No, now. I know. Okay. I'll get I'll get bombs playing in the middle. Yeah, I gotta, I say probably the Sixers. Okay. Um, all right. You you can redeem yourself now. Okay. Do you I'm love cheesesteaks? I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. I don't eat cheesesteaks. Okay. You, you know, do? I tell you the re- I've had one cheesesteak in my life and I hated it. The this guy's not I from Philly. Like okay. All right. <laughs> my dad, he was head waiter on the Browns. Waiter in charge, as it was called. When he finished his run, he would bring home. All of the food that was left in the refrigerator, they didn't want to throw out. This was the golden age of railroads. As I was seven, eight, nine, riding the railroads, yeah. I would uh, ride out to Indiana to visit my aunts and uncles. I would ride to Buffalo. Um, when Dad came home, I didn't realize at the time, he would come home with boneless sirloin steaks. Yeah. My idea of a steak sandwich is we'd set up waiting for Dad to come home. He'd open up his um, uh, little satchel, and he would have boneless sirloin steaks like an inch thick and mom would grill the steaks put them between two slices of bread put some fried onions on them and give that's a steak sandwich that sounds pretty good (laughs) that sounds pretty good i'll give you a pass one we'll give you one last philly question uh rocky movies and i'm including creed because it is one of my favorite movies great movie or greatest movies ever good movie I wouldn't put it up there with the Godfather one. Oh <laughs> my gosh! All right, you're not you're not going to be able to walk the streets of Philly. I'm All right, la- last qu- guys. Last question. I have not gotten to use a gavel. I didn't even get one. Have you ever okay. gotten to use a gavel? I never have. I've studied martial go. arts all my life, and if I had to 
use the gavel. I would use my fist and I would bring the fist. <laughs> actually, one time, actually, I, I cracked the bench doing that. Wow. All I right. stopped doing that all, uh, after a while. Well, that's why you don't mess with people who are in <laughs> Philly, even if they're not from Philly. So, Judge McKee, I can't thank you enough for helping us. You know, we may not have a gavel, but I, I hope that the students and people listening, uh, anyone uh, knows that they too can grab the gavel. So thank you. Thank you. And good luck to you and to everyone listening. You've been listening to Grab the Gavel, a podcast series from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. We hope you've enjoyed this segment and learn more about the Rendell Center's mission and work at rendellcenter.org. Thanks for listening.